Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, everybody. I'm Michael Caris, and today on Raise the Line, we continue our focus on rare diseases with a look at Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, a severe form of childhood onset epilepsy. We could not have a better guide on hand because my guest, Dr. Tracy Dixon Salazar, is not only executive director of the LGS Foundation, but she's been helping her own daughter deal with the condition for the past 30 years. She uncovered the genetic driver of LGS, and she identified a novel precision therapy that improved her child's life. Dr. Dixon Salazar earned her Ph.D. in neurobiology and neurosciences from UC San Diego and has nearly 30 years of nonprofit leadership and advocacy experience. And it's a great pleasure to have you on the program today. Thank you for having me. So let's start, as we always do with our guests, by learning more about their backgrounds. And in your case, I would love to know what you were all about before you encountered LGS. Wow, you're going to make me go back in time. You know, I was a very young mother. I had my daughter when I was 22 years old, and I had two children at the time, so I had my son even younger. And I hadn't really done well in high school, and I really had no ambitions on life. You know, I grew up not really having a lot of guidance or structure, not really having parents around, and so I was just existing. And then I met and fell in love with my now husband. We've been together 30-plus years And then, you know, as a young mom, he's in the military, he was in the Marine Corps, and I was following him around. I, you know, I joined the Navy after high school, I had done my four years, or I'd gotten out, and now I was being a mom. And and then one day, out of the blue, Savannah had a seizure. And both of us were so uneducated and unschooled that we thought she was joking. Uh, You know, we, we heard her in the middle of the night, hacking and gagging. And we ran into her room and she was stiff as a board and blue in the face. And she had drool and blood sort of coming out of her mouth and her eyes were rolled up in her head. And we thought, oh my gosh, she's choking because neither of us had ever heard about or seen a seizure. Sure. And that was our harsh introduction into the world of seizures and Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. And it's been equally harsh, I think, every day since then. Yes, I can't imagine the just fright and bewilderment that a parent must face at a time like that. How were you able to move forward? I mean, you know, going back to that night of the first seizure, that was really the uh, the turning point when you think about before and after. So the Tracy before was a mom taking care of her kids, just letting sort of life live me and going through the motions. And, and you know, it's not that I wasn't intelligent or engaged. It's just, you know, I didn't really know how to be. And I remember the paramedics came that night and they said, you know, her airway's clear. It was over by the time they got there. The seizure was over. But what you described sounds just like a seizure. And so both my husband and I were like, what's a seizure? And over the next six months, we took her to the doctor. She had a couple more of these episodes. They wouldn't even call them seizures back then because they didn't want to label her with epilepsy. You know, our first introduction to the stigma of epilepsy was actually from the doctors themselves who didn't want to call it epilepsy, which in hindsight, is somewhat ridiculous. You know, if you have a ravenous mountain lion standing behind you and someone tells you it's a kitty cat, right? <laughs> you still have a ravenous mountain lion behind yes. you. But yes, good point. You know, all of her tests came back normal. She was two years old, well, healthy two-year-old. And then six months later, by the time of three, the seizures really just it came back with a vengeance. She started having them every day, hundreds a day, too many to count. And it wasn't until she was five years old, she got, you know, the, the finally got the LC diagnosis around three. And then at five years old, she got the Lennox-Gastaut syndrome diagnosis or the LGS diagnosis. 
And it was at that moment that I realized that the medical system didn't really know what to do with her. The prevailing dogma that we were hearing out of doctors' mouths was not matching our home life scenario. And I'll just explain that really quick. So the doctors were saying, thankfully, we don't need to know what causes seizures in order to treat it. And yet by the time she was five, she had tried and failed, you know, six, seven different treatments. And they would say, seizures don't damage the brain. And here, my two-year-old, once she started having seizures, stopped developing. Now, remember, this was, you know, 30-ish years ago. So the dogma is still around, but it's not as prevalent as it was back then. But seizures don't damage the brain. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, of course they do, because I'm watching my child not develop at all anymore. And then they would say that you can't die from epilepsy. Yeah, right. And yet there were multiple times during that period what we had to resuscitate her. Or that she got aspiration pneumonia and almost died. Not only do they not know what to do with her, there seems to be this prevailing dogma that's totally antithetical to what I'm actually seeing in my real life. And I realized I had to like fight. I had to become her advocate. Yeah. And that mother and father love. You'll do anything for your babies. And so I had to become educated. I had to become an advocate for her. I had to try to keep this kid alive because no one really knew it wasn't anything you know nefarious or deliberate but nobody really knew what to do with this kid who was having you know a good day was five to ten seizures and a bad day was hundreds too many to count and that was our life from the time she was five with the lgs diagnosis till you know she got the epilepsy diagnosis and that three and then to the age of like 18 she just had more than forty thousand seizures and was seizing all the time and I just, I had to figure it out. You figure it out because you love your kid. My goodness. Yeah. But holy cow, what a daunting challenge. And for the clinical folks in the audience, what causes LGS? What's going wrong here? Yeah. So LGS, nobody is born with, with LGS. We often think of it as metastasizing or spreading, right? And it's not a good word for the scientists out there. It's not the same like mechanisms of cancer metastasis. But what happens is the children start seizing in, in the first, you know, usually the first five years of life. And then there's something about the seizures that they become uncontrolled. And then you start to see an abnormal EEG between seizures, not hmm. just during seizures, but between. And it's because the brain is developing so rapidly in the first five years of life, that the seizures then now start to change the way the brain develops. And what happens is the brain wires itself wrong, and that is LGS. So to get the LGS diagnosis, you have to have pediatric onset seizures that are almost always uncontrolled. I mean, you never see people with controlled seizures evolving to LGS. You have to have more than one type of seizure. So this is really unique. Children, as the brain develops, their seizures will change types. And you often don't see this in adults. Once the brain, you know, adults with epilepsy, the, they have kind of one set seizure type or it might start one place and spread, but they don't evolve and change and move around in the brain. And then you have EEG, very specific features on the EEG test, which is a test to measure your brain waves. And these features are called slow spike and wave and generalized paroxysmal fast activity or GPFA. And everyone with LGS has SSW and GPFA. And so it's this moving target, but it's pretty much established by age six in the major majority of patients with LGS. And it's a wiring defect, no matter what caused your early life seizures. And there's tons of causes of that, but no matter what caused your early life seizures, they all have the same EEG features. And now the brain is sort of wired itself to have seizures. Mm. And because they're having so many seizures, you know, daily in most patients, they stop learning. 
And then I'll just add one thing to that is so if you go back, so what started the seizures that then evolved into LGS? Like we have no idea what causes LGS. Right. But what started the seizures? And it's pretty much everything in the kitchen sink. About half of LGS cases are genetic, and there's more than a thousand genes now. So we have Down syndrome kids that start having seizures and evolve into Lennox Gastaut syndrome, tuberous sclerosis complex, various sodium channel mutations like SCN1A, SCN2A, SCN8A, you know, and then the other half. So there's all these genes that anything that predisposes early life seizures, that's a gene is an at-risk for developing Lennox Gesto syndrome. And then the other half are acquired. So early life birth injury, a cord around the neck, lack of oxygen. We've got a group of families that their kids developed cancer in very, very young age, and then post-chemo developed seizures that then evolved into Lennox Gesto. So it starts out, this is very heterogeneous, you know, mixed cause disorder, very, very, you know, smorgasbord of different causes that converge all onto the same exact EEG pattern and the same exact wiring defect. So that was a long way. It was, it's very complicated. Yeah, no. Get people to say like, can you describe LGS in like two minutes? I'm like, <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no. That was but but very very helpful to everybody to have that context. So you know, we've talked to lots of parents on the program who have kids with rare diseases, and they all tell similar sort of story about encountering a medical community that really didn't know much at all, and they had to educate themselves. But boy, in your case, you really educated yourself. And as I mentioned at the beginning, went on to do this really important research. So so talk about that experience and, and how the research evolved and the results. Yeah, you know, it really started out with this idea that, two ideas. The first one was, what can make a healthy two-year-old? All of a sudden, out of the blue, start having seizures. And then six months later, their life is completely derailed like forever. So that was the first thing. Like, what's the switch? And I, I was very curious about that. And the second thing was no one was really looking. You know, I mean, again, when you go back to this dogmatic way of thinking, I'm like, well, what if, if we knew the cause, maybe we could have like helped her in the beginning. And so I, I very literally was this, this naive. I thought no one in the world was studying epilepsy. So I thought I'm going to be like the first person in the world that's <laughs> studying this and looking for answers. And I'm happy to report that during my education, I have met many thousands and thousands of people, tens of thousands that are studying epilepsy, but not a lot that study LGS. And I I originally enrolled in college because I, I, had, I used to go to the library and check out books that were like 10 years old. There was internet at the time, but you could check out internet at the library for an hour back at this is how long ago this was. Oh. Oh my gosh. And there was very little. The internet was very, very young. It was less than five years old. So there wasn't much on it anyway. And then you could get interlibrary loans from the Library of Congress and stuff. So I get 10 year old books mm -hmm. and things. And I just would read. And I'm as in the course of my reading, just what, just generally, what could cause epilepsy? What could cause this? And I realized that I didn't understand the paper. So I had to enroll in college to take some English oh. classes. And so I did. I enrolled in college took some English classes, took three of them, got an A in English. Apparently, I must have learned something in high school. I must have retained something. I was highly motivated now, but all those, you know, C's and D's and F's all of a sudden became A's now that I had motivation. And I realized that the papers I was reading weren't in English right. at all. They were in science right. and medicine, which are two different languages in and of themselves. And the the, the fourth class is an ecology and evolution class. And we learned about genetics. We learned about Gregor Mendel. And I was at a junior college because I had years of remediating to do before I could get in any like real classes. I remember learning about Gregor Mendel and thinking, this is it. 
this is it. This is the switch. It's genetics. It's genetics. And I never went, I love, I meet, I meet parents today and they're like, I need to raise $10 million. I am going to cure my child. who's like four. And I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah. I, I wish I had that level of self-confidence. I did it. I just wanted to maybe one day know what caused Savannah's seizures. And so I spent, you know, seven years getting my bachelor's and then realized that I could go to grad school because grad school, if you were competitive enough to get in, you could offset your cost of tuition. Right. And get a stipend and stuff because we were very, very poor. Both of both of my husband and I grew up pretty poor and didn't have a lot of money as we were raising our young family. And and then of course get a rare disease and then you'll have no yeah, money ever. Yeah. And then ultimately, yeah, I got my PhD and did a postdoc in neurogenetics. My PhD was all in how the brain puts itself together. Postdoc was finding genes that cause these early life epilepsies and then giving a lot of mice and flies and stem cells and organoids these diseases and trying to fix them. Really, I just wanted to understand what could cause. I never really thought I was going to be able to help Savannah. It was never the goal, but I ended up sort of heading that direction. And what was that discovery that put you on that path? Yeah. So my, my first year, so as an undergrad, I had volunteered in a genetics lab and we were using, you know, single capillary sequencers to sequence a couple of exons at a time. And then I, four and a half years to do my PhD and I come back and we're sequencing whole exomes. And I started my postdoc the first year that the the exome capture kits were released. So you could capture just the part of the DNA where the exons were. And this is like, you know, looking back at science, right? Incredible. I thought, oh my gosh, this is incredible. So we're finding all these genes. And one day my thesis or my postdoctoral advisor asked me how my daughter was doing. And I broke down into tears, which is every postdoctoral advisor's dream to have their, their student <laughs> or their postdoc to cry uncontrollably. And he said, he goes, well, why don't we sequence Savannah? And I was like, okay. It was kind of an ugly cry. And it was kind of a novel thought back then because our lab really focused on studying inherited forms of these diseases, right? Of these neurological diseases. And we didn't sequence sporadics really. We didn't have a family history. So Savannah was really the one of the first sporadics that we kind of went after trying to find the gene. So we sequenced mom, dad, and me. And my job was to do the sequencing and analyze the DNA and analyze. We were, this is where we had million line spreadsheets where we were analyzing variants because we were building a pipeline for analysis and variation. And it took me over a year. I just kept looking, but like first pass analysis, didn't find anything second pass. But then as tools would get created and you would get more information or more genes would be discovered that were linked to disease, you could look at them. And ultimately there were these tools that came out that allowed you to group genetic variants into the pathways that they listed, they lived in. So all of us are walking around with several hundred unique rare variants. They're just ours. And in the general population, usually they might be de novo, meaning mom and dad didn't give them to us. They kind of arose either in the sperm or the egg or after the sperm and egg came together. And they could be advantageous. They could be deleterious. And we know that rare diseases are a lot of these de novo deleterious, you know, mutations. But we grouped all Savannah's 300 in pathways and the calcium signaling pathway really came out for that. And to make a long story short, that led us to discover that she's got seven mutations in L-type calcium channel genes, very, very high mutation load. And L-type calcium channels are really special in the brain for how they help neurons talk to each other. And they let calcium in the okay. cell. And she's basically got too much calcium going in when these things open. And there's a drug, there was a drug on the market that blocks L-type calcium channels called verapamil. It's been around forever. It's not used in epilepsy at all. It's used in high blood pressure and in arrhythmias, but it's FDA approved. So we had nothing left. I mean, by the time Savannah was 18, she had tried and failed 26 different treatments, drugs, diets, devices, and surgeries. Wow. 
and alternative therapies. She was having about 300 seizures a month on average. She was functioning at still at that two to three-year-old age level. She was sleeping about 18 hours a day. She was on seven medications at the time, plus a vagus nerve stimulating device, which stimulates your vagus nerve. And every week, at least two to four times, she would go into nonstop seizures. And you have to rescue, you have to stop these with, you know, rescue drugs like Valium and other benzos. And she was aspirating a lot, getting aspiration pneumonia a lot, and was just very near death. We were losing her. So we talked to her doctor and put her on this drug, verapamil. And within two weeks, she had just a miraculous response. It was a 95% reduction in seizures and a 100% reduction in her status epilepticus. And nobody is more surprised than, than me. Unbelievable. I mean, was this the first case that you know of where that medication had been used and had that effect? Yes. Yes. It looks like it dropped off. If you look back at the literature, it looked like there's like a valley of time where no epilepsy drugs were approved by the FDA. And then one got approved. And that's right around the time Verapamil started getting studied. And then it, there, and in, a negative interaction between that new drug and Verapamil was shown. And then you just never see Verapamil in the literature again for epilepsy, which is interesting. Yeah. Hmm, yeah. So what impact did the medication have on her day-to-day life? Oh, man. So it's been 11 years. And since that day, so Savannah, it just turned 30 a couple weeks ago. And it's night and day. She is on poor medicines. So she was able to come off and she then her vagus nerve machine is off. She started to learn again. And this was the biggest thing for me. If you had told me drug number 27 was going to change your quality of life, her quality of life and her ability to learn. I'd be like, no, the brain's too damaged. She had 40,000 seizures across a 16 year period until she was 18. So no way, brain damage, too much brain damage. And she defied us all. So she can walk now. She's, She's very ataxic, but she can walk on her own. She can talk. She doesn't sleep 18 hours a day anymore. She probably sleeps about 12. So she does sleep a lot. She probably has about two to four seizures a week, which is bad. No one wants to, two to four seizures in a lifetime is bad. But if you're talking about 300 on average, so 75 to 100 a week, down to three or four, I mean, that's huge. Incredible. She doesn't go into status anymore, so she's not getting these constant rectal delivery of these benzodiazepine drugs. These are emergency rescue meds to stop the seizures, and they have the lovely benefit of being rectal, Mm. which is so fun. And she's just thriving. She's very social. You know, we used to count her sentences, like like how many words did she use in a sentence? And like, oh, she spoke a three-word sentence today. Mm. And we stopped after like 40. And she's sassy. And I'm, I feel like I met her for the first time. Like she's very strong and opinionated, very sassy. She's got a great sense of humor. Sometimes I think that's like typical for her age. And, you know, it's allowed us to have some of these experiences. Like a few years ago, I was going to some event and I had to wear a dress, which is not my favorite thing to do in life. And, but she <laughs> sat on the bed and she's like, mom, my, and she, she says speech delay. She'll mom, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm picking out a dress. And she'd go, I help. I'm like, yeah. And so she helped me pick out a dress and some shoes. And like, it just dawned on me that this is things that mothers and daughters do that we never could do. And she's just very social and she can remember stuff. She can actually remember like who the people in our lives are and she misses them and she can use FaceTime and work the DVD and the iPad like there's no tomorrow. So incredible. It's been incredible. It's just been night and day and probably took us about four years to stop living the secluded, you know, self-imprisoned life that we had set up for ourselves. But now we like 
go out to dinner sometimes. Wow. We never did that. You can't. Well, your kid's sneezing all the time. Why, why bother? Just oh, like, no. Yeah. Right. Can't do that. Right. And what about the impact on the wider LGS community of this drug and anything else that's come from it? Yeah. So I, I ended up presenting at the American Epilepsy Society meeting when I was still a postdoc on this in front of, you know, five to 6,000 people. And that's the professional society for epilepsy doctors, mostly. It was the first time anybody had heard of this concept of, you know, precision medicine, right? Or genomic medicine or repurposed medicine for this. And I remember it was, it was very humbling because I had to tell the story as an outsider as if I was a postdoc studying the patient, because I couldn't mm. get through it without crying. <laughs> I would cry a little bit right now, too, just thinking back on it. But then at the end of the of the presentation, I, I was I revealed with a lot of tears that it was my daughter and, and that the hits had had an impact. And I think, you know, if you time this back, I think that this really launched the precision medicine movement in the epilepsy space as a whole. People weren't really thinking about sporadics. They, we didn't know about de novo mutations back then at all. And I, I remember it's just, just very humbling to give that lecture. And then to see the field rush to this concept of we're finding all these genes and we can start to now, you know, change these dogmatic ways of thinking. We do need to know what causes it in order to treat it. You know, and, you know, if you look at epilepsy as a whole, right, so they say 70% of people with epilepsies use more of the adult onset epilepsies, and they have intractability for sure, but that's very different than this 20 to 30% of these really severe childhood onsets. And so first you got that separation, and then second, you got this movement. And, you know, my first 15 years as an advocate was me saying, why aren't we developing any drugs in children? Why aren't we developing and doing any studies in pediatrics and these severe, the people who need it most in my mind. And, you know, I would hear things like, oh, there's no appetite from pharma. There's no path through the FDA, you know, and it's like, but that pivoted. And it wasn't just, you know, obviously my story alone, the orphan drug act came in and I think mm. orphan diseases now, you know, they would always, the, the things they would say is like, oh, we're not going to develop a drug against LGS because it's too rare. You're too rare to give a shit about. Sorry. You're too rare to care about. Right. And that's what I heard for 15 years. And it was depressing. But this this completely changed me from a feeling of, oh, my gosh, I'm never going to make a difference in this field. No one wants to hear from patients. LGS is never going to get studied because it's too rare and it's pediatric. And it was kind of that feeling. It's like, oh, we don't want to study developmental epilepsies because developmental mm. is so complicated. It's sort of like not wanting to study like women <laughs> in, you know, in populations because menses messes everything up right it's like it was that same dogmatic way of thinking and so for me it was that turning point where all of a sudden the genomic revolution plus the orphan drug revolution that was going on plus there was an imaging revolution i mean if you look at the history of brain imaging across time and functional imaging right that was happening and all of a sudden my despair turned to oh my gosh I was this teeny tiny one domino in a one million domino puzzle that's going to change the world for the future LGSers. And that's really what, you know, kind of moved me to advocacy. I mean, if I wanted an easier life, I should have stayed in academia, <laughs> to be honest. Advocacy, there's no money. There's no prestige. There's nobody's done it. So there's like no path. Like at least I knew I had to get papers and grants right. to be successful in academia. But now I'm like, oh man. Oh, so you're not, you're out of the academic route altogether? I'm out of the academic realm now and 100% advocacy. Okay. 
Wow. What's the state of things now? Have other drugs come along? Is there promise? I mean, we hear so much about advances and CRISPR and all these other things going on. What's what's the story with LGS? It's night and day, actually. I'm giving a talk next week on this, but it's like, what did it look like, you know, 30 years ago? And what does it look like now in the rare disease of in the rare epilepsy space? And it's night and day. So all of those dogmas that I mentioned about, you know, not knowing what causes it and you can't die and brain damage, gone. They're gone. They're gone. They're proven. And, and yeah, there's some old timers that still sort of hold to that. But for the most part, those are gone. And we now, you know, talk about LGS secondary to calcium channel mutations or LGS secondary to your trisomy 21 mutations. And you now have two ways to treat the disease. You can treat the Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, which is the, the EEGs and the network, right? And you hear the doctor say, oh, they look like they're going Lennox-Gastaut. So the EEG becomes very erratic. And we're looking at doing prevent trials, you know, five to 10 years from now that how can you stop it? If they look like they're going LGS, oh my goodness, stop it. But also you can get your ideological treatment just like Savannah. And so there's a ton of research that's going on on repurposed drugs for the for the ideologies, right, early on. And we know, you know, from cases like Savannah and many, many reports now too, that even if they don't find a medicine until yeah. they're 30, it can change their lives and the family's lives. And then of course, gene therapy is rapid and on the rise. We've, we work really closely with a lot of the foundations. They Many, many families have started gene-specific foundations. You know this. I can't fund research for a thousand genes. Right. Right. But I can focus on research to stop that evolution to LGS while they're focusing early. And, you know, like our friends at Test Research Foundation are going into gene therapy trials next year. And SCN2A is really working on N of 1 trials. And then there's tons of repurposing work going on. And can we repurpose this drug over here, you know, to target the pathway? And it gives me so much hope. I had no hope for the first 15 years of the space. I'm not going to lie. It just felt like I was this tiny little rock hitting my head against a bigger wall, a bigger rock wall, and not making any of a debt. And now it feels like all of us are like thousands and tens of thousands of rocks that are throwing ourselves up against this wall. And and with the orphan drug change and with you know the changes that we've seen in our ability for patients to have a voice in the whole process, right? Like no one wanted to hear from me 15 years ago, but now patients have a platform. The system is slowly changing. And you know, I hope one day I get a chance to like write this down or that somebody sees it because to see to see something so dysfunctional change even a little bit for the better in your lifetime is actually a really beautiful, beautiful thing. Oh, my goodness. What an incredible story. Absolutely incredible. And I'm just so admiring of your persistence and advocacy and you know for your daughter and all these other people as well. How can people get involved and help out if they want to? Oh, wow. That's a great question. You know, at the Lennox-Gastaut Syndrome Foundation, we are constantly looking for people that want to be a part of our mission. The biggest thing that I would ask everybody to do is please go online and get training in seizure first aid. Everyone can do this. The Epilepsy Alliance of America offers free first aid training. Okay. And I will get the link for you so we can share that. But the Epilepsy Alliance of America offers free first aid training for anybody. You can do it online. You can do it in your own time. But get seizure first aid trained. You need to know what to do in case of a seizure. Lennox-Gastaut syndrome is rare, but one in 10 people will have a seizure in their lifetime. Wow. One in 26 will develop epilepsy. So epilepsy itself is not rare. So that's the first thing I would suggest. And the second thing is, is if you directly want to support the LGS Foundation, we have a group of families that are just devastated and exhausted by this disease. There's hope for the future, but 
for the most part, families are still living with daily seizures. Savannah's a miracle story in a lot of ways, and I'm fighting for that. So if you can donate, if you can share our social media posts and raise awareness of this disease, or if you want to go even further and volunteer in some way, please don't hesitate to reach out, lgsfoundation.org. I'm Tracy. You can find my email on the website too. And we're really just trying to help a group of people that can barely get out of bed in the morning because they're living in crisis mode all the time. And I know this because this was us 16 years and empower them to take one step today to fight back against this disease. And it's a population that's hard to self-mobilize. So we're going to need everybody to help (laughs) us. We're not afraid to ask for help. We need help. So please, lgsfoundation.org, we will take any help we can get. I hope people respond. So as we wrap up, we always like to ask our guests to give advice to the med students, nursing students, and early career professionals in the audience about approaching a career in healthcare. But, you know, given your story, I think they're probably quite inspired by how you managed to go from being not such a great high school student to becoming, you know, a PhD. So what advice do you have for pushing on and, I guess, building the confidence that you were talking about along the way? You know, I think the thing I've learned, I learned many things, but one of them is just that this is a game of persistence. There's so many people that quit, you know, and there's all these quotes out there that say, you know, you only fail if you don't try. And there's, you know, there's obviously some truth to that. But if it's something you really want to do, you'll do it. And it's really about being persistent. You're going to get kicked and knocked down. Believe me, I know that. We all know that. But just keep going at it, you know, and find the thing that, that you care about. You know, you're not always going to love your job. But if you if you generally care about what you're working on and what you're doing, I think that's important. And, you know, just a, sort of a few sort of self-serving pieces of advice for the medical community. And the first one would be, Patients and families, they can have more than one diagnosis, right? So we have a lot of people that are coming in and saying, I don't have LGS now. I have, you know, calcium channel overactivation disorder. And I'm like, that's great. You can't get any services based on calcium channel overactivation disorder, like therapies, you know, occupational therapy, speech therapy for your kid, but knock yourself out, right? And the reality is, is you know, it's like, she, my daughter has epilepsy. She also has Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. She also has calcium channel overactivation disorder. She also has intellectual disability. And when you're interacting with patients and families, all of those diagnoses are needed to go and get, you know, so don't get so stuck in our, let's not get so stuck in our ivory towers about what's working at the medical system, but involve patients, talk to them. We want to help solve our own problems. We, 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 we love, we can't do it without doctors. We can't do it without researchers. We can't do it without the whole system, but we want to help. So just ask us and we'll help you. And we can make, I think better things together and save time and money. And the other thing I would just say is challenge the dogmas. Challenge, always challenge the dogmas. One of my favorite lectures one time, remember it was Dr. Ramachandran who was phantom limb. He did a lot of phantom limb researchers. He teaches at UC San Diego. And he asked us to to talk about the dogmas that have been overcome in our lifetimes. And, And one of the first ones that was said was actually DNA always goes to RNA, which always makes a protein. Now we're here in 2023, and we know that that's not always true. Every piece of DNA does not make (laughs) an RNA, does not make a protein, right? There's all these sort of cross pieces of it. But I'm always shocked at how often I hear in the community, we were surprised to learn. We, (laughs) We didn't expect that. I don't believe that is true. The whole point of science and medicine and progress is to overthrow dogma. 
right? To overthrow these ways of thinking that are stale and old and, and to change our new way of thinking with new data. And so we get sort of stuck in our ways. I get that. But don't hesitate to take those things and, and really analyze them and challenge them if they need to be challenged. A fantastic, inspirational message to end on. And I just want to thank you so much, Dr. Dixon Salazar, for taking the time to be with us today. And we just wish you all the best and continued success in your incredibly important work. Thank you. I'm Michael Carice. Thanks for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise the line and strengthen the healthcare system. We're all in this together. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>